0: Hey, everybody. uh, My name is Andre. I'm one of the pastors here at this church. Um, It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, We're just going to get right to it. If you've been with us for some time, we've been in a Hebrew sermon series, and we've been talking about Jesus the high priest. Um, it's been amazing. It's been so rich and so deep. But in light of today being membership induction Sunday service, we're going to take a pause from Hebrews, and we're going to take some time looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles up or your phones, please find 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 26. And Today, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, okay? So if you can choose your um, version, please choose that one. If not, just feel free to look behind me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. This is what Paul says to the church of Corinth Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body." On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you can see, today is a very special day for us here at Mosaic Christian Fellowship. And the reason is because we just had the honor and pleasure of bringing in 24 new members into our community. And it's been amazing uh, to see that you guys commit to this community. It's been awesome to see that this is a community that you see yourselves fitting in. And it's been so cool to hear some of your stories as to why you chose to be part of this family. And we can't wait to walk with you and we can't wait to build this church with you. Um, And this is the reason why we're taking a break from Hebrews today. Because as new members are joining this community, but also as we have some newcomers here at this church, and if it's your first time, just want to say welcome to you, um, I'm sure there are a lot of questions on, so what does it mean to be part of a church? Like, what does it mean to be part of a community? And so I know talking to some of our newer members that you guys have a lot of questions as to what this looks like, right? Some of the questions that you're asking is, okay, like, what do I do now? Do I like, just jump the gun? Should I join media team? Should I join welcoming team? Should I join college team? Like, what, 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 like, what should I do next? What's next? And then talking to others of you, I know some of you have this deep, deep fear in your hearts where you're thinking, please don't make me co-host on stage. Please do not make me do announcements, okay? And if there's anything I can promise you, you will be up here soon, okay? It's just a matter of time. So just get ready, just start practicing. It's a matter of time. Or you might be asking yourselves, what does it even mean to be a member of the church? And the fact that I took these vows, do they even mean anything? And I know our newer members are not the only ones asking this question, but there are others of you who've been part of our community for some time who are asking the same kinds of questions. And while I could list out for you every ministry serving opportunity that we have available, while I can tell you about every single approaching event, Like the Thanksgiving banquet we have next Saturday, make sure to come out to that. And while I could tell you every other need in our community to paint a picture for what it means to be part of this community, I'd rather look at a specific image that our text is showing us today and that the rest of the New Testament tells us about, and it's the idea that the church is a body. That's the image I wanna to use to communicate to you what does it mean to be a part of this church. You need to know that this body is made up of a bunch of people who are brought together by the love of Christ, right? And just in the way that this physical bo- that our physical bodies have many parts that are connected and that depend on each other, so are we created by design to be connected with God and to depend on each other, It's the same thing. And that's why I named the title of my teaching today From Independence to Dependence. Because that's where Jesus is taking you and me in all of our spiritual formation. The moment we placed our faith in Jesus, he begins to teach us how to surrender our independence and then to practice dependence. Dependence. And I know this is countercultural from what we've been told our whole lives because independence has been the goal, right, parents? We're trying to teach our children how to be more independent. For us who are younger folks, we've been raised to be independent and things like that. Independence has been the goal. And we've been told that true maturity looks like financial independence. It looks like independence from your family. It looks like independence from societal norms. And some of this is true to an extent, but we also believe more destructive lies about independence that goes directly against our spiritual formation. We believe lies like, I can only trust myself because others will hurt me. We believe I need to keep my struggles to myself because I don't want people to think that I'm weak or we believe that I need to pursue this image of being self-made because I never want to be looked down ever again. So in all of us, we have some form of a lie that we believe about independence that Jesus wants to unravel. But according to Jesus, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, true maturity is not more independence, but it's actually more dependence. Dependence. It's leaning on Jesus and his community when finances are a big question mark, when you have no idea how to raise your children, and when you feel like you're so lost in this world. That's where dependence kicks in and it saves your life. And leaning on Jesus and his body will even heal you when when trust has been broken by people you told some of your deepest, darkest secrets to, even if it was done by people who called themselves Christians. And in fact, if that's you, that's more of a reason to come to Jesus because if there's anyone who knows the brokenness that you feel, it's him. If there's anybody who knows how to weep with your brokenness more than you do, it's him. And if you've been part of the church long enough, it doesn't take long enough to realize that the church is a messy place. And we've seen throughout history what the church has done at its worst. But when the church is at its best, when the church is working as the body of Christ together for God's glory and for the good of all he loves, we're unstoppable. We can't be beat if that's how we're operating. But it first begins with surrendering our independence and moving towards dependence. So I have two points for us today. And the two points are this, the call to dependence, and the culture of dependence. Those are the two things I want to talk about today. So if you're taking notes, the call and the culture. So uh, let's let's look at the first one, the call. Read verses 12 to 14 with me. This is what Paul writes to the local church of Corinth. What these verses are saying is that just as a person has many parts to him or herself, like their arms, their legs, their feet, their hands, their torso, their neck, and and it all comes together to form one whole body, so it is with Christ. That in Christ, there are many parts or people from all different backgrounds, from all different places, kind of like the members that we have today, because they're not all from here. Some of them are from different places. But in these parts have various gifts and passions who come together to form the body of Christ. So in this picture, Paul gives, we see both an image of unity, but we also see an image of diversity. And the best expression for this idea of both unity and diversity working together harmoniously as one entity is the church. That's the church. But Paul doesn't write these verses to simply just tell you and me, like, that's the church. But he takes it a step further and he's placed his church in your hands. And now he says, guess what? You're the church, you're called to be part of this body. When he writes in verse 13, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Paul is saying that the moment we become Christians and we place our faith in Jesus and we have a relationship with him, we automatically enter a relationship with the church. This means the Christian experience is not only a vertical one between us and God, but it's a horizontal one between us and his people and the bible will go even further and say it's actually the vertical relationship that sets the precedent of the horizontal we all know the greatest command that jesus says right he says the greatest command is to is to love god with all yourself with everything that's in, within you and then to love your neighbor the same and what jesus is saying is that the mo- is that your genuine love for god it can't help but inevitably spill over in love to your neighbor. That's what he's saying. That's the connection he's making. And Jesus even goes further and connects himself so close with the church that Paul explains this concept in the book of Colossians, and he describes Jesus as the head of the church, which is his body. So Paul goes even further and says, Jesus is the head of his church, which, which is his body. So we can't say that I love Jesus, but simultaneously hate the church because they're one and the same. They go together. So the saying some have said, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. It doesn't work. And that's, that's a common phrase that maybe you've seen arise again and again in a lot of deconstructionists. But the, reason, but the reason they say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church is because they believe you can separate the two. Back in 2017, there was a study done by a Christian research organization called Barna Group. And Barna Group conducted a research of thousands of Christians based on their relationship and their perception with Jesus and the church. And based on their study, what they found was that 10% of the people that they interviewed, 10% actually subscribed to the belief that, yes, I love Jesus, but not the church. They believe that Jesus and the church can be separated. So to put that into context to our community, if we have about 300 attendees across our first and second services, that means about 30 of us also believe in this truth, that I love Jesus, but not the church. And to give even more context, that's about the 24 new members that just became members in our community. That's the size, that's the the population group. 10%. About 30 people in our community believe that Jesus and the church can be separated. John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, he kind of explained it this way, right? So I want you to imagine, imagine um, somebody came up to you, right? And imagine they said, hey, I'm really attracted to you, really interested in you. I want to date you. And imagine they come up to you and they said, you know, you know I th- your face, I think you're handsome think you're gorgeous, beautiful, but your body, I'm not sure. Would you, be, would you be insulted? Absolutely. Like, this is a total package. You don't get to choose this, but not this. It all comes together. And in the same way you can't separate the face from the body or the body from the face, you cannot separate Jesus from the church. If we're in a relationship with Jesus, we're also in a relationship with his church. And so the question is, why? Why are we okay with disconnecting Jesus from the church? And I think the reason is because the church is a messy place. And the church is a messy place because people are messy. We all know the phrase, hurt people hurt people. And I wouldn't be surprised if this was some of your experiences by going into the church. So I know that there are some of us who've grown up in church and we have this pain. I know there's some of you who left the church because of this pain, but you're back again and you're giving it another shot. And I know that there are others of you who've tried multiple times, but all you've been met with is pain and pain and more pain. But But what Paul wants to say to you is that if there's any reason not to give up on the church, It's because Jesus is making it beautiful. Paul says in Ephesians four verses 15 to 16, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. For from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Did you catch verse 15 where Paul says, we will grow to become? We will become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. He's saying that right now, the body doesn't fit proportionately with the head, but it will grow into it one day. It makes mistakes. It messes up. But the promise is that Jesus won't give up on maturing his church. And that means that Jesus won't give up on maturing you. He won't give up on maturing me. You know, the church right now, this body, it doesn't have a six-pack or a beautiful figure. In many ways, this body is sick. It's wounded. It's hurting. It's broken. It has a terrible diet. It doesn't exercise but you know what? Aren't we like that too? Right? Like, aren't we spiritually hurting? Aren't we spiritually unhealthy? Don't we have a terrible diet because of the junk we consume from this world? And don't we have a difficult time exercising our beliefs in this world? So even though we look like this, does Jesus cut you and me off from his body? No. But Paul tells us he instead commits to strengthening that part of him that's that's weak so that it matures. So if Jesus remains connected to us, how can we be so quick to disconnect ourselves from the church? How can we remove ourselves just because things don't meet our expectations? Imagine if the arm were to say, man, the feet, I really hate my feet. So I'm gonna cut my arm off from my body. What would happen to the arm? The arm would become lifeless. It would become malfunction, but also the body will suffer because of it. The body will be in shock. And so in the same way, if you cut yourself off from the body of Christ, not only will your spiritual life wither away, but you will hurt the body of Christ. In a conversation I had with one of my friends about this passage, he said, you know, at least some people feel like they're the arm. It's a pretty important body part if you ask me. At least some people think they're the neck. Me, I feel like the toenail of Christ. And and I looked at him and I was like, dude, have you ever had your toe broken, your toenail broken? I have when I was in fifth grade and my friend rolled his skateboard over my toe. And having to forcefully remove that nail so that the next one can grow, it hurts the whole Body feels it in the same way. Your spiritual health depends on being in a relationship to Jesus. Your spiritual health also depends on being connected to his body. And this is why you and I are called to move from a position of independence to one of dependence. So now let's look at our second point. So what does this culture of dependence look like? In the next set of verses, in verses 15 to 26... Paul begins to write about the culture of what the church looks like when they learn to depend on each other and when they learn, when they begin to view one another not as strangers, but as parts together belonging to the body of Christ. And what's interesting about these next set of verses is that Paul is addressing two types of people in this passage. So when Paul uses, you know, imagery of like a body part, talking to a body part, he doesn't actually believe that body parts can speak, right? That's a metaphor of trying to get the message across, what the language was of certain people in this community and what they were saying to each other. So the first group are those who are in the community, but they feel like they don't belong in the community. The kind of verbal and body language they were using was, I don't belong here. And you see this in verses 15 to 16. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. So right there, you see the first type of people who feel like they don't belong here. Now, the second group of people Paul addresses are those who feel like the church is their high school kingdom, right? We all know those kind of people. And so think of mean girls, right? Like the church is their stomping ground. The church is where they feel like they're a boss. Like they're one way, a church so different out in the world. And these are the type of people, rather than bringing people in, they're pushing people out because they think other people are less than them. And the verbal and body language they were communicating was, I don't need you. You don't belong to the body. And you see Paul rebuking these folks in verse 21. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So on one hand, you have those who are struggling, fighting to belong in this community, But on the other hand, in the church of Corinth, you have people who are not allowing the culture of belonging and dependence to foster here. And the reason this was happening was because in the first 11 verses of our chapter, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He's talking about how each member of the community, each body part has gifts given by God as he sees fit for the building up of each other. And some of these gifts are the gift of teaching, right? If you're like P. Doug, they're teaching, worship, acting all in one, right? Another part of these gifts are leadership, development, hospitality, administration, encouragement, prayer. And some of these gifts, of course, were more public, while others of these gifts were more private. Some of these gifts you see being exercised from the pulpit. Others of these gifts you see taking place over a meal in someone's personal home, Some of these gifts influence many. Others of these gifts influence a few. But because some started to compare their gifts to each other, that resulted in either insecurity or arrogance. It forced people to say, I don't belong to this body or you don't belong to this body, all because of comparison in response to this culture of anti-dependence that was forming, Paul writes this message to set things straight. You see, the issue at hand in the church of Corinth is not gifts. It's not spiritual gifts. The actual matter here is an issue of worth. And spiritual gifts only revealed that. They said, are your gifts public and loud enough? Do people recognize that you have a gift? Do you feel worthy and indispensable? This is the place for you. But do you feel unworthy? Do you feel dispensable? Then guess what? There were folks who had this temptation in their hearts that they didn't feel like they could belong here. Even though Paul said, God provided you gifts that's perfect for you to influence those around you, they viewed these gifts in competition with one another rather than the benefit of each other. And as I was chewing on this, chewing on these set of verses, I couldn't help but believe that if the church of Corinth can use something like spiritual gifts as a metric to define their worth in relation to others, that we're capable of doing the same things here. We just do it with different things. If the church of Corinth used spiritual gifts as a metric, the metric we use to determine our worth in our community, I believe... Is how well put together of a person you are. Now, we're gonna package this. Now, think about this with me. We live in Bergen County, and this place that we live in is wealthy, educated, comfortable, and a hyper individualistic collection of cities, just like Corinth. So, what does this mean? This means the kind of people that are accepted here and elevated here are those who have their careers together, are socially adept, somewhat attractive, cultured, and for the most part, independent. And do you know how I know this is true? Who are the types of people you and I befriend? Who are the kinds of people we draw close to? We befriend people who we feel like that can add value to our lives whether that be spiritual, social, financial, emotional, or physical, none of us naturally befriend people who are draining, tiresome, frustrating, and needy. That's not what we do. And naturally, because our church is located here, we bring this kind of culture into the church. And depending on how close or how far you are to this standard of being put together, you will either belong to the first group or you will belong to the second group. You will either say, I do not belong, or you will say, you do not belong. And I wonder if God were to audit our church today and to see whether the culture of Bergen was stronger in our church, or if the culture of dependence was stronger, what he would find. What would he find here? The kind of culture Jesus dreams for in his church is one that boldly elevates the lowly and one that gently brings down the proud. The metric Jesus is using is not whether you look acceptable in the eyes of man, it's whether you look acceptable in the eyes of God, in the eyes of him. What are you looking to? So if you feel right now that you relate more to the first group And you're battling your insecurity to belong here, you have to let verses 18 and 22 refresh your soul. Look at what verse 18 says. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. Just as He wanted them to be. There's purpose, there's intentionality. In verse 22, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. They cannot be thrown away, no matter how you've been treated. Just because your gifts or your put-togetherness is not acknowledged by people, that does not mean you are less important. As important as the visible body parts like our nose, our eyes, our ears, and our mouth, so also are our invisible parts, like our lungs, our organs, and our hearts that live within us. Are your invisible organs necessary to keep the body alive? Absolutely. Does that mean that you are indispensable completely? Furthermore, it's not only... Paul's expression of our outer parts, that's what shows you our worth in God. But I believe if we were supposed to take a DNA sample test from you, like we are supposed to get, I don't know, get some sample somehow spiritually, what would we find? We would find that every single DNA, every single imprint of you has the image of God within it. You are made in the image of God and that's the truest thing about you. And what that means is that you carry his dignity. You carry his worth. You carry his beauty and you carry his significance. This is where Christianity gets our theology of the dignity of all people. We get it from that. So that means that whether or not your life is together, whether or not you are assured in your worth, or whether or not you like what you see when you look into that mirror, you can stand boldly knowing that you look like our father. You resemble him. So if you're still in this first group, you have to hear this and you have to understand that what it looks like for you to abandon your independence means surrendering any insecurity that you have about yourself in this community and believing deep down in your heart that God has called you to be a part of this community and that you have his image. You are worthy. You are significant. Because you look like him. No one can take that away from you. No matter what somebody says can take that away from you. No matter whether you get that job or not can take that away from you. Whether you feel like you're parenting your child well or not, no one can take that away from you. Whether you feel like you're being a good enough spouse or not, no one can take that away from you. You are indispensable, even if the world is telling you you are dispensable. And so if this is true for the first group of people, this means then for those who belong to the second group of people, abandoning your independent means no longer lording your possessions, your achievements, and your independence over anybody else in this community that you feel like doesn't have what you have. Because the last time I checked, we're not Christians because we were good enough. We're not here in this church because we thought we were the perfect fit for Jesus. Jesus. Like none of us in our prayers to Jesus said, hey, Jesus, let me tell you why I'm so perfect. Here's this, here's my resume. Here I'm the perfect candidate. And Jesus didn't look at us and he wasn't like, oh my goodness, like out of all the land, I have found only but you, you're perfect. That's not what he did, right? None of us are here because we were good enough. But actually the reason we're here is the complete opposite of that, because we weren't good enough. Because we failed in so many ways more than once. Because we fail to trust who he is, and if there's anything we brought to Jesus, it was the exact thing that should have made him run away, but he doesn't. He draws close. So why do we play this church game in this community that we feel like we're better than somebody else just because you have more money, just because you feel like you're better off than somebody else, just because you were raised a certain way where you view yourself above others? The message for you and me, Paul is trying to say is that Jesus levels all of that because we're all on the same playing field because we've all been saved by grace apart from our works, no one earned it. And if this is the community that you and I are a part of and if this is the culture of dependence we're trying to build here, we have to end these things real quick. We have to bring these before Jesus and say, God, I just give these to you abandon these independences. And so if this is true, if this is the community that we're a part of, this dismantles both our arrogance and our insecurities. It dismantles your independence and your lone wolf mentality, all while building up humility and confidence, dependence and community. That's what Jesus does. And look at what the goal is in verses 25 to 26 so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So to those who feel like you have your life together, are socially adept, gifted, capable of leading, you have to understand that those things were given to you as a gift by God so that you serve your brothers and your sisters, not to lord it over them. You were given these gifts so that you can get low and serve those who feel like they don't have it. So offer your time, offer your presence, offer your experiences to each other. Create a culture of inclusion and not exclusion. You know, I understand there are some people who are so good at just initiating conversation and we can go up to anybody and talk, but there are others who have a hard time doing that. If you're good at it, take the first move. Introduce yourself to someone you don't know here and make them feel like they belong. And take the bold step to encourage others who are weak in Christ. Right, like, What does encourage mean? Doesn't encourage literally mean to put courage into someone? Do that. Practice that here. And if we do that, imagine what kind of community we would be if we all really practiced and embodied this culture of dependence. How much healing and unity would we see here? How much of a raise in confidence would we see? Raising together, like this level of togetherness and harmony, how much courage and love and boldness would we see taking place here? Because we fundamentally believe that every single person is indispensable because they're made in the image of God. Imagine what that would look like. This is the culture of dependence. And when we begin to practice this, our community will abandon the language of... I do not belong to this body. And instead, we will remind ourselves, I do belong to this community. And we will abandon the language of, you do not belong to this community. I don't need you. And rather, in love, say to each other, you do belong here and I need you. I need you. Imagine if we got better at saying, I need you. You know, I think, I think some of the hardest things to say in life is, I'm sorry. I need you and Worcestershire sauce. I just think that third one is one of the hardest things to say, right? Imagine if we said those two things more, I'm sorry and I need you. How much better would our friendships be? How much better would our marriages be? How much better would our, our, our relationship at work be? If we can just get better at saying, I'm sorry and I need you. And, and in the gospel, in this Christian community is where we can practice that because none of us are trying to act like we're something that we're not here but we bring ourselves, our full selves. So where do we get the power to do this? Where do we get the power? The power comes when you see God, the truly independent one, who by definition does not need anything or anyone, make himself so vulnerable and dependent through a form of a baby, the ultimate image of weakness and vulnerability. And then he grows up and even though he's God, he's abandoned by his friends. He has no one to depend on, and even when he asks his disciples to pray for him, they fail, and he goes to the cross, and he dies at the hands of his creation, His creation, whose every breath, every every blink and every action depends on him. He dies. When you see God like that, when you see someone like that, so high, gets so low. Someone so capable gets so weak. You know what that does? That disarms our defensive walls of trying to be strong. And it allows us to be weak. Whenever you have a hard time trusting in people, leaning on people, depending on people, look to Jesus. And let verse 13 remind your heart when Paul says, for we were all baptized by one spirit So as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Uh, Let's spend some time in prayer together at this time.